The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. It's Monday. You're watching Scorebox with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore, and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. U.S. futures whip-soaring in turbulent overnight trading, coming off their worst week of losses since October, while silver now in the spotlight as it attracts the attention of these short squeezers. Ten Republicans calling on U.S. President Joe Biden to downsize his $1.9 trillion COVID-19 stimulus plan. Democrats pledge to go it alone if they can't get the opposition on board. China's manufacturing growth eases as its uh, numbers hit the slowest pace in seven months in January. This is the private PMI survey, apparently weighed down by falling exports as the pandemic pain persists. And Myanmar's military seize power and detain leader Aung San Suu Kyi, announcing a state of emergency for one year in what the army says is a response to election fraud back in November. AstraZeneca strikes a deal with the EU to supply 9 million more COVID vaccine doses as the bloc backtracks on a plan to put checks on the Northern Ireland border. Uh, so welcome to the program, everybody. Very good morning. Let's just kick off with a quick look at the Julius Bear numbers that are coming through. So this is the presentation of the 2020 full year results from the Swiss bank here. The uh, group, let me just run you through the lines. They are proposing a an ordinary dividend up 17% to one uh, spot, 75 uh, Swiss franc per share. Uh, there is a new share buyback program that's going to be introduced of 450 million Swiss francs. So the uh, Swiss bank showing that it has surplus capital at this point and it wants to uh, make a point of returning uh, some of that capital to shareholders, both from a dividend and uh, a share buyback perspective. Uh, the bank is reporting what it describes as a significant rise in net profits here. So net profitable, uh, net profit apologies, uh, attributable to shareholders uh, up 50% to 698 million uh, Swiss franc here. So the earnings per share or the EPS up 52%. Uh, the uh, company telling us that they are taking a net cash charge though of 190 million uh, Swiss franc in relation to the group's investment in Kairos. This is the uh, Italian um, fund management group that they've had uh, continual problems with. Also a 73 million uh, Swiss franc provision related to an agreement in principle uh, with the uh, DOJ in the United States to uh, settle an investigation into uh, an ongoing uh, issue uh, surrounding FIFA. So by and large, the group fitting in with a, a number of those banks here that have seen an improvement in the net earnings line as a result of a trading income and an improvement in assets under management. Let me give you a couple of other lines that may be uh, relevant. The CET1 capital ratio in at a healthy 
14.9% at this point, and assets under management, uh, 434 billion. That's an increase of 2%, supported by new money of 15.1 billion. And guys, I think it's fascinating as we watch these uh, banks and their report cards at the moment, just to hear how many of them seem to have done well over the last uh, quarter, at least, and over the previous uh, nine months as they've taken advantage of the additional stimulus that we've seen from monetary uh, and fiscal authorities. Yeah, I know we've got to see you coming good, but I'll just say that um, Julius Baer, as we've spoken about many times, is the one company in Europe that is valued like the US peers as well. And we've got a price to book on this one, around about 1.75. That's up there with the best in the US as well. It's a very rare beast in the European banking sector. Game on in terms of buybacks and dividends, though, for the Swiss banks. And I think it's a very competitive space now as a result from what you're seeing from the other majors, UBS and Credit Suisse. We've got a couple of lines crossing from Siemens Health and Ears. So let's just get into the Q1 numbers. Uh, net income has risen 44% to 437 million euros. The company, though, is setting the bar high as it uh, pre-announced uh, a couple of uh, changes back uh, late January as it raised its outlook for 2021 sales and earnings per share. It cited a stronger demand for antigen tests amid the pandemic. Let's get to Bernd Montag, who is the CEO of Siemens Health and Ears. Bernd, thank you very much for joining us today. I know there's a few swings and roundabouts with uh, what you're seeing in the business based on COVID, but just walk us through what you witnessed in that first three months of the year. Yeah, thank you very much for having me and good morning. I mean, the first quarter, I think, proved two things. On the one hand, our core business is very strong and is coming very well out of the pandemic um, in imaging and diagnostics. And on top, um, I think we have definitely proven our agility by um, taking the opportunity with the antigen tests to also contribute to this um, very, very important need of society. What's the climate like in terms of picking up new business? Because I noticed uh, in uh, recent weeks you did secure a key contract, uh, about £170 million uh, worth or million dollars worth of contract, and that was with the Manchester University NHS Foundation Trust. So what's the environment like out there, uh, away from just the the pandemic-related noise we're seeing? Yeah, thank you very much for this question, Yeah, because um, I think the the numbers um, definitely show that our core business is um, very, very healthy. Um, the, the long-term partnership we announced with uh, the Manchester Trust is just one example. We see very, very good, a very, very good development in Europe um, for, our, uh, for our business, also China. Um, and I think people see that um, healthcare is a super important part of a national infrastructure. Um, and we are a very, very attractive partner for shaping the long-term technology position of a healthcare provider. Ben, um, just going through your presentation, your 20 pages of slides on your, your site as well, there's some great stuff on there as well. But what I want to know is how much of the world will normalize post the COVID uh, pandemic on how much have we changed for good now? What I'm saying is, is, is this going to be the presiding factor for the next couple of years or so? Or actually, do you think maybe 2022, it's going to be about the rest of your business? I mean, um, I think um, for us in, in, in our business, um, first of all, the good thing, the positive aspect, yeah, if one can say so at all, of, of, of the pandemic is that it 
uh, taught everyone how important healthcare is and um, and a modern infrastructure. We see, um, because of that, a very, very healthy development in Europe and in China. And we will see the United States coming back um, in the second half um, of, of um, this calendar year. And I also am convinced that COVID is a boost for um, modern healthcare, for a more digital healthcare, but in the end also for a more humane a way of delivering healthcare. And delivering healthcare and delivering um, the solution to the current crisis is what we're all obviously watching our political masters for as well. Ben, I don't know if you want to jump into the conversation or not, but what do you think has gone wrong in Europe as well? You've had uh, obviously a huge proaction at your company. We've seen many great European companies doing a very good job in, in testing, uh, in vaccines, in, in treatments as well. But why at a political level is Europe doing so badly uh, in its response to COVID-19? Well, I don't uh, really think that um, I, I'm in a position to comment. Um, I believe, yeah, and also when I when I was in in uh, direct conversations with uh, um, officials, um, I think they are doing their best. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the topics have to be done um, in a phase of unknown. Um, so it is clear that societies are very very impatient currently. Um, but given um, the, all the unknowns, um, I think we also need to be fair uh, to politicians. So I think you're being incredibly generous. I don't think their best is good enough when it comes to under procuring, under spending uh, and clearly having a very slow rollout for the European population as well. Do you really think they're doing their best? If they are doing their best, do you think we need new leaders, sir? <laughs> well, you, um, no, I don't think so. No, and I believe, I mean, now what I also see is with Europe acting as one, um, I believe the consequences have been drawn um, and um, I'm sure um, in a year from now um, we will for, we will have forgotten about this um, controversial um, start. Bernd, good morning. A couple from me. Firstly, I just wanted to ask you if you could just tell us a little bit more about the um, COVE-2 antibody automated test that you uh, submitted to the FDA for approval. Um, progress on that what the potential opportunity is and why it's important for us to measure the effectiveness of the uh, COVID vaccines. And I guess the second one is just, can you just round out a bit more detail on the progress of the variant deal? Yeah, two things. I mean, um, the antibody test is, um, um, there's, there is potential in it. I mean, currently um, it is, um, still to be seen, also scientific, from a scientific point of view, whether there is um, a role in it in, in, in um, proving the relationship between immune reaction and immunity of a person, yeah, to see also whether or not somebody should be vaccinated and also um, what is the immune status of a person. Yeah? This is where we are in very, very... Um, strong and deep conversations, both with um, with, uh, with key medical collaboration partners, with with the authorities and with the manufacturers of the vaccines. Um, and to the other point on uh, on the variant um, deal, I'm very happy with how things are going. First of all, on the 
um, on the uh, side of the approval of the deal. Yeah, we got the very important antitrust approvals in the United States. Um, the CFIUS deal we are um, we, um, we still we are still uh, expecting and feel positive about um, Europe and China. Um, so from that point of view, everything on track. But more importantly, I'm very very happy with how the integration planning is going. Yeah, we um, have in the meantime 800 people in, in both sides, um, in Varian and in Siemens Health Engineers, working on the integration planning. Um, and the atmosphere is very, very positive, and um, people can't wait to be one and um, come out of the pandemic as an even stronger company. Well, that's terrific. And just to pick up on the point you made about the the, the testing, um, what do you think the potential market is for that product in uh, in euro sense terms? This is too early to tell. Yeah. Um, I mean, when it comes to antibody testing, um, I mean, there, a bearish case is, well, there was never a vaccine and a companion diagnostic. Yeah? Um, um, the bullish case is, hey, it, this is a huge on-top opportunity. Yeah? So, and from that point of view, I don't really uh, want to speculate because uh, vaccination, as we discussed, has just started. So. Absolutely fantastic. You could take our questions, though. We do appreciate you taking all of them. And uh, good to see you, sir. Bernd Montag, who is the CEO of Siemens Health in Ears. Now, um, before we get to the numbers of Ryanair, can I show you a chart? Because I think it's absolutely a fascinating chart. And it is the chart of the shares over the last year or so. And what I think is fascinating, well, I thought I can tell you about it if we haven't got the chart, uh, is the fact that the shares hit their low back in March. Um, at around about eight euros per share. They're still at 14 euros a share, give or take the change. Now they've come off their high, but I think that is extraordinary decision by the market not to take this stock and its peers down to their lows, despite the horrendous havoc that is being wreaked on this industry at the moment. I mean, let me just go through some of the numbers and let's be honest about it. This is no fault of Ryanair on their own. In fact, they're doing everything to mitigate it. This is no fault uh, of ICAG or any of the other big airlines. It is just a horrendous situation for them, which they can do nothing about until people are back on plane. So the figures today, 306 million euro loss for the final three months of 2020 versus a forecast of 300 million in the company poll of analysts. Um, Their cash well, it's going down, as you'd expect, three and a half billion euros in cash at the end of 2020, as opposed to 4.5 billion at the end of September. I, I can give you loads of stats, but you know it's tough out there for them. Third quarter revenue down 82% to 340 million euro. What about expectations? Cautiously guiding an FY21 a net loss uh, of between 850 and 950 million euros. But quite frankly, Michael O'Leary and the team, they're pulling numbers out of nowhere. He knows it. We know it. Until we see clarity on vaccinations, on recovery of the global transport market, on people getting on planes to do business uh, and to go on holidays, it's a guess from anyone as well. But it's a horrendous situation for the airline. I have nothing but empathy for them and their peers. And you can see that uncertainty expressed through the lens of the commentary of the weekend here in the UK about whether we were going to be safe to be able to book summer holidays or whether there would be still restrictions in places. We've got these hotel quarantines for a lot of Brits returning from overseas now. I want to push on to the US market action. We saw so much frenzied last week with retail investors taking on the hedge fund community, which saw mounting losses for some of those hedge funds that have been short particular stocks on the market versus other hedge funds that use momentum trading strategies, use the 
volume and did particularly well on the back of the action we saw, but an incredibly volatile week that we witnessed, uh, having ramifications for the entire market and for the S&P 500, one of the worst trading weeks since October. Friday's session, it's a worst uh, trading session. You saw third negative session in four, I should say, down uh, to the tune of 73 points and for the week down 3.3%. So across the board, we did see selling in the Friday trading day, 2% coming off uh, both the Dow and the NASDAQ. So it was a week old trading day. Let's take a look at the big names that have been in focus. It's GameStop clearly where the market has concentrated its attention, but other big names that had been shorted by the hedge fund community have also been swooped up by this retail army of investors. And this is what it looked like in the trading session. Huge gains yet again, whopping moves, 67% on GameStop. Don't forget too, the marketers that were coming into the Friday session were focused on Robin Hood putting some curbs on trading around these particular stocks, about 13 names. But then by later in the day, it raised some raised more money. It uh, reduced those restrictions. And then, of course, you saw still a lot of action in these particular names. The exception was BlackBerry, which did fall 3.7%. want to take you to what you're seeing on a retail ETF. This was one that we watched very closely, XRT, last week, and you saw huge outflows out of this over the course of the trading week to the tune of roughly $700 million. We did see a slight pop Friday session, but it was one of those anomalies. If investors were buying up GameStop, which is part of this index, and its weighting was lifted to about 20%, why were investors selling the passive? And there was a view that perhaps they were going for the underlying stock rather than holding it through the ETF. Some of that sorted out as you saw another push higher in session. But what next, though? And that's been the big questions we focus on what regulators would do from here. In the meantime, investors uh, have been very busy again on social media. It was flagged up very early on that silver could be the next target for some of these Reddit users. And uh, what we saw was a, a doubling down on focus on the world's largest uh, silver ETF trust in uh, the Friday session. Uh, and this is how it played out. You could see the gains very much transpiring across on the, the silver trade. Uh, the Russell 2K, let's just switch over to that because this has been one of the favoured trades more broadly for other investors. We're not talking about retail ones here. But uh, the large fund manager community has been very much focused on the opportunity in the rotation. And this particular component of the market has been strong. We just saw a reversal, though, in the, the weekly session last week, the fifth negative session in a row for the first time since its uh, six-day streak ended early in February. So for the week down about 4.4%, pretty disappointing performance. Uh, and Friday session pulling back by about 1.5%. Volatility. Well, let's take a close up as we talk about uh, more action coming back into these markets. 33, we're, we're far above the, the longer term average of 20. You can see the escalation in fear uh, that has uh, been materializing on this uh, so-called fear gauge. The question is how broadly it has been sweeping away from the US markets. And there is a, a view that we have seen some of it too in the European markets uh, that's been flagged up on the V-stock index and the market volatility here in Europe. It's climbed to its highest level since November. And also just worth noting, you've seen some stocks in Malaysia too, also targeted by social media traders. And uh, one stock on the KL exchange in Kuala Lumpur, it is uh, the top glove maker. And that's been uh, one of the big uh, trades that you've witnessed in the, in the Asian uh, trading session. So, Jeff, it feels as though we are seeing a feature of this market volatility spread much more broadly than just on Wall Street. And you said it's a glove maker, Karen. Is that right? The top uh, glove maker, biggest maker of rubber gloves. And uh, this has uh, been traded under Bursa Bets, uh, is the subreddit.
Uh, well, I guess uh, probably kind of handy for the directors then who are hoping that their shares are going to get pushed higher. But I mean, just a bizarre story. And we'll we'll come back to it because there are extraordinary ramifications of this uh, apparent concert party approach to buying assets, not least in the silver market at the moment. But I know we're going to spend a bit more time on that later on. So let's refocus then on that row between the EU and AstraZeneca. Extraordinary political movements as we closed out last week with a suggestion that the uh, EU itself was going to um, uh, basically uh, shutter the border between North and uh, uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland. Uh, we're going to get into that conversation when we come back. Stay with us. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. everybody let's pick up on the latest on this eu vaccine story then there have been developments through the weekend astrazeneca is now set to supply the eu with nine million more doses of its covid19 vaccine this quarter bringing the total to 40 million. The delivery will begin one week earlier than expected. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said it marked a step forward after an unexpected supply cut fuel tensions between the bloc and the drug maker. Uh, the EU has confirmed the UK will receive all of its vaccine doses from manufacturers on the continent. The bloc had imposed a vaccine export ban over the weekend, but had to partially reverse course. Withholding supplies from Britain would have required overriding a key part of the Brexit deal and triggered checks on the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. British Trade Secretary Liz Truss warned against vaccine nationalism in coming months. We have received reassurance from the European Union that those contracts won't be disrupted. But now I think we need to move forward, work together with our counterparts across this world, rather than putting in restrictions and protectionism, which ultimately will only damage citizens. So just briefly, I mean, this whole EU saga has exposed some extraordinary weakness yet again in the ability of the bloc to react very quickly to circumstances um, that are usually beyond its control. But I would say that in this situation, part of the problem is down to the lack of planning and foresight before we got to the point of vaccine approval, and it won't have um, been lost on anybody, I think, that we knew we needed the vaccine. The vaccine was in development. So why at that point 
weren't plans being made for the rollout programs by national governments and also to address the issue of capacity of manufacturing because at this point that seems to be the other snag in the story that some plants have obviously had to stop while they've tried to expand capacity. All of this surely could have been foreseen by professionals who operate in this space. And I'll just wrap up by saying I never thought Michel Barnier, who's been painted as the pantomime villain, of course, by a lot of the Brexiteers over the course of uh, uh, the last few years' negotiations, he would step forward ultimately as the voice of reason among a few, basically saying to the EU, let's just calm down here and let's not act rashly. And uh, I think we all appreciate the fact that they stepped back from the brink on Friday and didn't impose these tough terms on the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. There was a lot of hope and optimism, Jeff, that uh, you were going to see these inoculations carried out uh, in the first quarter of this year. And that simply has not been the case because of all the issues. And the problem is that we've spoken about these European vaccine programs as though they're one because of the ordering of certain vaccines. But the reality is the, the inoculation programs are rolled out at a national level, which is why you're having issues. I wanted to bring up some stats I saw from UBS because it's just quite stunning. They were saying that about 10 percent of the world will be inoculated by the end of this year. 21% by the close of 2022, which gives you uh, quite a different context about the economic journey as we're relying on vaccines to make a difference this year. I mean, just 10% of the world inoculated. I mean, the crisis and the pandemic has fallen on different nations in different severities, of course. But I mean, I'll come back to this point as well. It's Look, I, I I was a very interested in the kindness with which Bernd Montag showed our political masters in the interview where I just asked him uh, about the incompetence of Europe because it has been incompetence. There is no other way that it could be anything else than this. Um, they ordered late. They ordered in lower quantities. They haven't invested in their own rollout. And they've looked at national champions, for instance, that haven't necessarily come through. And there's some just extraordinary comments coming through. I mean, look, I'm going to steal a quote from Dominic Lawson, who's a, a UK commentator, son of the, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, actually, uh, about the, the, the lady in the restaurant who complains and says, well, this food is inedible uh, and the portions are too small. Uh, And the point here is, this is what Macron is saying, isn't it? Macron is saying, oh, well, the drug doesn't even necessarily work for over 65s. It's quasi-ineffective. I mean, that's ludicrous. And at the same time, bemoaning the fact that the AstraZeneca drug hasn't been rolled out in enough quantities as well. No, I'm sorry. I I know these people, like uh, Ursula von der Leyen as well. I mean, what a shambolic performance. What a lack of understanding about history as well. The fact that she can potentially enact Article 16 without even telling, without even telling the Taoiseach uh, of course, as well. And, and, and they did something amazing over in Brussels. They managed to unify um, the, the hard Protestants as well uh, and with the, the Sinn Féin end of the political spectrum as well over in Ireland because they didn't tell the Northern Ireland executive, they didn't tell the Taoiseach in the Republic, they didn't tell the British as well before they were doing this. I mean, what a complete and utter shambles and lack of understanding of history that they could potentially even think about that given how important the Good Friday Agreement was. Let me round out your Macron point when it comes to France. I mean, this is a man now counting down to the next French election. Exactly. He needs the European project to work and another key test in time. You've got problems uh, around this partnership with European nations. Yeah, and I'll just say briefly, I mean, we'll come to the sound a little bit later on, but I, I, I had a really great interview with the Taoiseach of Ireland before a lot of this kicked off. Right. On Friday lunchtime, we were chatting between 12 and 1. And of course, a lot of his Article 16 stuff happened later on. He was there defending the Europeans as well. But I mean, later on, of course, the, the actions looked virtually indefensible.
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.